Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I'm the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for giving the show a listen this week, a download, a view, wherever it is that you are. We are so grateful that you are here with us today. Speaking of giving the show a view, we are now available in high def because we are putting the shows, we are putting the exam room up on YouTube. Just head over to the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel. You can subscribe there and watch it in beautiful 1080p. You can even see the fun little fruit and veggie toys that I have on the desk. You know, I've got carrots and I've got grapes, bananas and celery, all of them with plush, smiling faces. Easily one of the greatest finds that I've ever made on Amazon. And they really tie this old drab brown desk. They really tie it together. They bring it to life. Love these things. The show today, boy, oh boy, it is a big one. If you're like the majority of us and you haven't been vegan for your entire life, then what we're going to talk about is really going to make you think back to when you were still eating meat. And you might even feel a little green around the gills. Because today, we're not just talking about the dangers of eating meat. We're talking about the dangers of meat, period. Because today, we're talking about... Fecal soup. So what in the world is fecal soup? Dr. Neil Barnard, he is going to be here with the answer. And as you'll hear him say, you can find a big old vat of it, a big old vat of it in every chicken processing plant in the country, bar none. Basically, what it boils down to is that there is a good chance that any chicken you've ever eaten in your entire life was covered in feces. Literally poop covered meat. You're going to hear about how nearly impossible it is as well for inspectors to catch all of the contamination because of the intense workload that they're under. These guys literally tasked with inspecting a whole chicken for poop in less than a half of a second. Two chickens per second. And how that number now is actually increasing because processors are churning out more and more product. Already, these large plants are processing more than a million birds every week. So what's the end result here, right? Dirty birds, and I'm not just talking about Atlanta here, dirty birds are missed time and again. And that package of chicken that you bought from the store, yep, you betcha, covered in chicken poop. And yet... And yet the USDA says that it has a zero tolerance policy for fecal contamination in chicken and other meats. So how big of a problem is it that we're talking about here? The Physicians Committee actually conducted an independent study to find out. We hired independent investigators to buy chicken from 15 different stores in 10 different cities. And we're talking about all brands here, not just the store brands. We're talking about the big boys like Purdue as well. And we're going to get into the results of that study with Dr. Barnard, the findings of it. But I will tell you right now that they are stomach churning. Stomach churning. 
Also on the show today is the Physicians Committee's own legal ace, Mark Kennedy Esquire. Uh, And he and his team have made some big news recently after filing a lawsuit against the USDA, alleging that they are failing to properly regulate fecal contamination in meat. Now, news of this lawsuit dominated headlines because it is not a partisan issue. Okay, this is a health issue. All right. Dominating headlines, nonpartisan. The Washington Post, Fox News, among the first to pick it up. That should tell you everything you need to know right there. But then the USA Today, CNN, Politico, the Detroit Free Press, and a ton of TV stations quickly followed and also reported on the story. And it even made global headlines as the Daily Mail over in the UK also ran a report on it. Big time news. Some numbers now before we get going with the interview. The CDC estimates that 48 million people will contract some sort of foodborne illness every year in the U.S. alone. And of them, 128,000 will wind up in the hospital and more than 3,000 will ultimately die. Now, I want you to pay particularly close attention to what Dr. Barnard says when I ask him about the argument that the the same bacteria that we're talking about, that same bacteria on chicken, has also been found on spinach and on lettuce and other produce. You know, E. coli outbreaks have caused massive chain restaurants to temporarily shut down because people have gotten sick. So critics will then say, well, hey, this isn't just a meat problem, so stop blaming meat for everything. It's an argument that's been made time and time and time again. But just wait until you hear how it all ties together. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll talking about a rather disgusting topic today, but an important one nonetheless. I will say if you have a snack food or food of any form in your hands right now, probably not the best time to be noshing. We are going to be talking about fecal soup. If you think you're just eating meat, (laughs) you're wrong. Uh, With that, we welcome to the program Dr. Neil Barnard. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be with you again. And also here with us today, yeah, look at us, man. We're we're tripling up on interviews today. Uh, We have uh, Mark Kennedy, who is the Vice President of Legal Affairs here at the Physicians Committee. Dr. Barnard, I want to start with you, um, because I know that Americans, we roughly consume, on average, 83 pounds of chicken every year. That's a lot of chicken per person, right? Um, But... Of those 83 pounds of chicken, that's a lot more than just chicken. They're getting more than they bargained for. They are. Um, Americans do eat a huge, huge amount of chicken. Another statistic that is, to me, even more troubling is a million per hour. Collect- collectively, Americans eat a million chickens every hour. Wow. And you think, well, I'm eating the, the chicken meat. Um, chicken meat ha- it has an unusual characteristic that people might not think of it. It's very absorbent. It's like a sponge. And so the chicken arrives at the slaughterhouse, um, hung up by the feet, and is stunned and then killed. And the head is removed. And pretty soon, um, the chicken's body goes through a scalding tank, where the, so that, uh, which allows the, um, 
the process to scald the skin. The feathers are easier to remove then. The feathers are removed. Um, the intestinal tract is removed. This is all automated. Um, so the gut is basically ripped out of the carcass. As that happens, that gut was filled with feces, and it splatters around on that bird and the other birds that are nearby and the workers who are there. And so the, the chicken feces end up being everywhere. And now this warm carcass has to be cooled down, and so it will go through a, a cooling bath. And at every point in this, whatever contamination there was going into that initially clean water, it's now getting murkier and murkier and murkier and murkier, and researchers have referred to that water bath as fecal soup. The hot one, the scalding bath, you could think of that as your... Uh, maybe your fecal bisque. Um, <laughs> the cold one, that's your fecal gazpacho. Uh, the point oh, being is that, and, and so back to the, the chicken muscle. The chicken is a very absorbent animal. The, the chicken muscle is very absorbent. If you put it in a, in, in a bowl of water, it starts soaking up that water. If you put it in this cooling bath where thousands of birds have preceded it and all the feces on their bodies are in that soup, what do you think goes into the chicken muscle? The fecal material goes into the muscle. So then it, the, the irony starts. You have an inspector who actually does look at, or glance at least, at every carcass that goes by. Now, it could be 140 birds a minute. Yeah. So they don't have a huge long time to, to glance. But if they see a big smear of feces on there, they can cut that out, if, if, or they can call for it to be condemned if they need to. They are not seeing the feces that goes inside and soaks into it. So when you go to the store and you see one of these frozen chickens and it's in plastic, the feces was in there when it was frozen and it thaws out on your kitchen counter. Um, yes. Am I cheering you up with this? <laughs> I've never had a bigger smile on my face, Dr. Barnard. <laughs> we tested this. Going back in 2012, we went to 10 different cities and we sampled chickens we purchased them, and we sent them to a laboratory. Washington, D.C., Charleston, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Miami, Phoenix, San Diego, Milwaukee, Denver. We went into them. We went into these 10 cities. We looked at, at um, 15 grocery store chains and took 120 samples. And what we found is that 48% of them tested positive for fecal contamination. Really? Yes, 48%. Now, now, the others may have had it, but it just wasn't in the little part that we were able to sample. But yes, 48% had had feces on in the chicken. Might as well say half at that point. Yes, it's about 50%. Yeah. So, so if, if you go into the store and you bought two chickens, one of them at least has plenty of feces inside. And, and again, it's not on the surface. Some is on the surface. But most of it is, is getting into the muscle itself, getting into the skin, getting into the muscle. Uh, here's my question. I want to go back. You, you said that inspectors are looking at at least 140 of these chickens per minute. That's more than two per second. How in the world can anybody expect that those chickens, even getting an eyeball for obvious contamination, how, how can they expect that to be efficient? It's an uh, it's a completely out of date system. And the whole whole idea was that a consumer doesn't want a chicken with a broken leg or a smear of blood all over it, or something obviously wrong, a big ugly tumor. So that you can see. But you can't see fecal contamination. If it's, you're talking about uh, things that can be invisible, it's tiny little traces that have been absorbed by the bird. Um, and the lines have gotten faster and faster and faster, and industry knows that you're, the amount of money you make is proportional to how fast you run your line. So they have every 
motivation to keeping that line, line running very, very quickly. And the inspector's job has become, in my view, a formality. Forgive me if you said this already, but of the chicken that the Physicians Committee tested, we're testing more than just store brands. So around here, there are plenty of giant stores. So it would be more than just giant chicken that we're testing. We're testing oh, no, major, I'm major poultry providers. Purdue Chicken, Pilgrim's. Yeah, we, we, we're, we're looking at the major brands that people will choose, as well as store brands. Right, right. Um, so absolutely. And so far as we have seen, all the major brands have fecal contamination. It's part of uh, keep in mind, every single chicken you ate had an intestine filled with feces. It was ripped out by a mechanical device and splattered all over the place. And if you're, if you're thinking that somehow you're going to cool this carcass down in water without spreading the feces from one bird to another, you're dreaming. Real quick, I know that we're talking specifically about chicken, but now I'm kind of thinking, this can't just be a problem with poultry. I mean, this has to be pretty much every meat that ever gets processed ever. Yes, it's it's true for every every animal species. But one of the things I really like about spinach is that spinach doesn't have an intestine, uh-huh. um, and that's true for beans. And it's if you ever had contaminated spinach, then it was contaminated from an animal source, right? Um, where the animal feces got in the irrigation water and it was sprayed on the crop or something like that. No, the the animals always have contamination. So that's when when you hear about E. coli in the spinach, that's what happened. It came from an animal. Mm. It came from an animal source. If we didn't have animal agriculture, we wouldn't have those problems to anywhere near the extent we have. Now, people will say, okay, but you can cook it. Right. And it goes away. Right. Well, you can cook it. <laughs> um, it's the equivalent of taking a chicken breast and sticking it in your unflushed toilet and sw- swilling it around a little bit, letting it absorb some of the feces that's there, and then throwing it on your grill. Mm. You can cook it. And <laughs> in the course of cooking it, you will kill the fecal bacteria. Um, There are E. coli and other pathogens in the bacteria, and you can cook them, um, and you can kill them all. But keep in mind what you're doing. The chicken's intestinal tract had E. coli and many other bacterial uh, species in it, but it also has roundworms and hairworms and tapeworms. Uh, It has insects and larvae and, and whatever that chicken has happened to pick up and ended up in their intestinal tract. And so you can cook all of that stuff, but but it doesn't go away. You're still eating it. And, Chuck, here's what really concerns me. People are right to not eat raw chicken, for sure. Um, You don't want to be having a salmonella and listeria and whatever else they carry. But the more you cook it, the more you create carcinogens. When you cook chicken muscle, carcinogens form. They're called heteros. There are many kinds, but the, the big kind is heterocyclic amines. And so when you cook the chicken muscle, the heterocyclic amines form. So if you don't cook it, you've got bacteria that, are, that are, can be life-threatening. The more you do cook it, the more carcinogens form as a result of the process of cooking the animal muscle. And that can be life-threatening, too. And as a separate exercise, we tested chicken products at the major chains. And I'm talking about Burger King and Chick-fil-A and, and every place that serves chicken. And what we found is that you will find carcinogenic heterocyclic amines from every major brand and all the small brands too. That's just an eye-opener right there. Um, here's, a, here's another stat that I wanted to throw at you. I think that Consumer Reports looked at something similar, uh, and they found that evidence of fecal matter was found in all 458 pounds of ground beef that they tested. Every single one of those pounds. And, but, but, hey, you can cook it away. You can cook it away. What you're cooking, you, you, are, you are cooking the feces. The feces is still there. It's cooked. Oh. It's cooked it's, am I cheering you up? I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sure I am. Such a big smile. It, it really is. But anyhow, um, 
Yes, that, that's the case. And most of us grew up with this idea that it's just chicken breast or it's just uh, cows and, uh, or it's just a, a pork chop or something like that. But as you realize, how do you run one animal after another after an, another after another through this facility and eviscerate them all and have the feces and blood splattering around and have this be a pristine product coming out the other end? It doesn't happen. And the water that the chicken is dipped in for the fecal soup, I would imagine it's chlorinated, in which case yeah, that is. chlorine is also going to be ingested once you eat the chicken. It's all part of the process, yes. Just wonderful. Just wonderful. So what can we do to kind of help alleviate fecal soup, get it out of your life? If you don't want to go on a plant-based diet, let's call on the USDA to try to do some things. And I know that we have reached out to the USDA to try to, I don't know, improve some of these conditions, bring a little bit more consumer awareness to the problem. And, Mark, I want to talk to you a little bit about this because I know that we have, uh, dating back as far as 2013, been in touch with the USDA about these things. That's right. We're good friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet you are. Go out to dinner all the time, That's right? That's right. Um, talk to me about what it is that we're asking. In 2013, after doing some of the studies that Neil mentioned, we filed a petition to the USDA. And in it, we made a number of points. But the three most important things we said were, look, feces is an adulterant. You know, the, the definition under the law that the USDA enforces in inspecting these facilities is that an adulterant is something that consists in whole or part of any filthed, putrid, or decomposed substance or is for any other reason unsound, unhealthful, unwholesome, or otherwise unfit for human food. And I think feces fits the bill. I mean, don't you? I have no argument there, counselor. So we said, you know, for years, USDA, you've known about this. There's a 2009 report by USDA, if I'm remembering correctly, that said something like 87% of tested samples had evidence of fecal bacteria, E. coli. And so they know about this. They've known about this a long time. We actually gave them back their report. Said, See? And um, so in the petition, we, we said, you need to regulate a, uh, feces as though it's an adulterant. And what that would mean under the law is that an adulterated food has to be set aside. It is literally not fit for human consumption. It can't go through the line. The other thing you need to do is warn consumers. There's a mandatory label that is on every meat and poultry product inspected by the USDA, and it has a couple symbols on it. You've probably seen it without realizing. Well, we said on this label, you must tell the consumer that there is a strong likelihood of feces being in this product. And then there's a little oddity in that there are slightly different labels for, for meat and what's called, you know, poultry under these two acts that the USDA enforces. And the one for chicken literally includes the word wholesomeness on it. It says inspected for wholesomeness. And really, there, that, that couldn't be farther from the truth when we're talking about a product that more often than not will have feces in it. And so we said, please remove that word. Mm. You know, it's three simple things. Yeah, that, that's all. Uh, Dr. Barnard, when you think about poultry, do you think about the word wholesome? You know, it's, it, it can't be inspected for wholesomeness because the fecal bacteria are invisible. These traces of bacteria that smear across the surface, you can't see it. Um, and so it's not as if each uh, chicken is sent to a laboratory. That's what we did. That's not what they do in a slaughterhouse. They wrap it up with plastic and expect you to buy it. Yeah, off, off it goes. Um, and so now uh, 
you, you took your friends back out to dinner, um, and they didn't call you back the next day. Shame on them. So it was the fecal soup. It, they, it, they didn't feel well <laughs> after that. Well, so there's a, let me just say there's a funny thing about what Neil just said. There is USDA touts this thing called its zero uh, zero tolerance policy. And what this is is a zero-tolerance policy for visible feces. And so if the inspector is on the line, and as you said, these things are zipping by, uh, newer rates, I think, are even up to about 175 per minute. That, that was under the relaxed standards of a newer rule that came out a few years ago. If the inspector happens to see the feces on it visually, which, as Neil said, is kind of a rarity because it's a bacteria, you're not going to see it. But if you see a big splotch, feces, the inspector can spray it off. That's called reprocessing, and it goes right back into the line, and that's A-OK. Now, if the inspector doesn't see the feces, well, that's A-OK, too. Okay, uh, maybe this is a stupid question. Why not just use a black light that can look for bacteria? I mean, is, is that asking too much? Or, or would that just shut the plant down, gentlemen? Well, it's important to remember that some of them have actually sunk into the tissue of, of the animal. They're no longer visible. Um, and uh, the, the system is really designed not to help the consumer, really, because their, their presumption is, as a consumer, you should know that this could hurt you. You should know that this could hurt your children, so it's up to you to, to handle it with gloves and to clean your kitchen surfaces and treat it as if it's a, as if it's a biological specimen and to cook it carefully, and that's the idea. And so careful parents who are careful enough to, to treat it uh, as if it's an unhygienic product but not so careful as to <laughs> realize they should just go to a vegan diet, uh, many, many parents are actually following these guidelines. Um, it does reduce the risk, but it doesn't reduce the risk enough. And I'll tell you another worrisome statistic. Um, researchers looked at urinary tract infections, ba- bacterial infections that are common in, in girls and in women and somewhat less so in men. And they took the genetic blueprint of the E. coli bacteria that are responsible for their urinary tract infections. They then compared the bacterial, the E. coli, in the chicken counter at the store and found an exact match for the vast majority of infections. Here's what I'm getting at. The parent brings this stuff home. It's, it's there, and their teenage daughters and others are eating it, or they're in the kitchen, they're cracking open a soda and touching the counter where the chicken has been. And then these bacterial bacteria get into their body, they breed, they, they populate the intestinal tract, and then they then lead to infections later which we didn't associate with the chicken. You thought, well, it's just bad luck or poor hygiene or something like that. You know, it's funny. Like, hearing, hearing you talk about that, it makes me think back to, and we're raised as children from a very early age to really think of raw meat as this biohazard. And, and you, you really, you don't correlate it there because it just seems normal at the time, but, you know, separate cutting surfaces, separate knife. Don't dare let it get around the produce. And whatever you do, wash your hands after you touch the raw meat. You have to wash your hands. Otherwise, what? You get sick. Those are all good ideas. Those are good steps. But the best step is just don't bring the darn thing in your house. Uh, that seems like a common sense approach. <laughs> they can't miss. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> and if you do, your cholesterol will fall and you're likely to lose weight and all the other good things will happen. Counselor Kennedy, I want to turn my attention back to you, sir. Um, so 2013 petition, take them out to dinner. They didn't like the soup. You don't get a call back the next day. Here we are present day 2019. What's happening? Well, we, we filed a lawsuit. But, but, you know, going back to your description of, of our uh, 
get-togethers with the USDA. We literally did go into the USDA the following year, and we met with some officials, and we said, you know, we have this pending, uh, pending petition. What's going on? And at the time, they were rolling out this new rule, and they kind of nodded and said, yes, we're thinking about it, but we'll get back to it. And as you said, it's been a number of years since then. We submitted a Freedom of Information Act in between, and we said, if you're not going to tell us by responding to our petition what you're up to, please tell us in you know a routine request for information. And that's been lingering. So we're, we're out of patience, and there's more feces than ever. Uh, and we're just, we're here to file this lawsuit, which we did. And we're asking the court to tell USDA to take action on our petition. Hopefully, you know, it works. Do we have any sort of timetable on how quickly we're expecting the wheels of justice to to move here? They, the wheels of justice are slow. Uh, they, they turn pretty slowly. It, it could be a while. We'll, you know, we'll keep you updated, of course. And, you know, if we have some great news, we will come right back in and talk to you. But these types of lawsuits, um, you know, sometimes they take about a year or two. Wish it was. I wish it was overnight, uh, Doctor Barnard. I know that this seems like a, a rather simplistic question, but um, as you are the president and, and founder of the Physicians Committee, uh, ideally here, what would you like to see the outcome be? Well, what I would like to see is exactly what we asked for. I would like every package of chicken to have the words on it saying, "Warning: This may contain feces." And so people should know that as, as they're bringing it in their house. And if they are revolted and say, I don't want to bring this in, so much the better. But I have to say I have a more immediate hope, which is that if people hear that we're suing over the fact that the government is hiding from you the fact that there is fecal contamination in foods that you're buying, and it's a food product that isn't particularly good for you anyway because of its uh, its content of cholesterol and saturated fat and the carcinogens that go into it and so forth, my hope, my more immediate hope is people will say, enough is enough. I mean, I knew it was anti-environmental. I knew it was bad for my health in so many ways. But if it's actually fecally contaminated, let me just leave it at the store. If people made that decision, I think that would be the most important thing. And I would imagine, uh, just play conspiracy theorist here and, and devil's advocate a little bit, there are some people who will say, well, the meat industry is uh, putting big dollars to ensure that uh, – the process doesn't necessarily change. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, and, and I'll turn to Mark, but, but my, my strong assumption is not only is the meat industry putting every possible effort it can into helping people not think about what the product really is. They don't want you to think about the fact this is a slaughtered bird um, or that it's got fecal contamination or anything else. They want you to think sizzle and nothing else. Um, but worse than that, um, when the courts look at the lawsuit, they are going to think, wait a minute, if we are honest here, <laughs> what we are going to have to determine is going to have enormous economic co consequences. Right. But my view of the thing is that cancer has enormous, enormous economic consequences. Um, when you have a whole industry that is, that is founded on something that is, is harmful, unhealthful, and many would say unethical, then I think it's time to, to, to let heaven fall in its own way. Mm. Uh, Mark, what have you discovered as far as uh, big money from big meat producers uh, being involved in this process here? We saw when we were doing, you know, we, we filed our petition in, in mid-2013, and then shortly after that we filed a supplement to our petition because there was this new inspection program that was introduced as a possibility, and just, just the proposal was well over 100 pages long. And the idea was speed up the inspection lines, have fewer inspectors on the line, privatize the inspections. And so what you have is less and less of a role for USDA inspectors and more of a role for 
inspectors selected by the industry. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 all about the bottom line there, the the monetary bottom line, and. You know, one, I mean, it, it's in our complaint here in the, in the lawsuit. But at some point, the um, USDA once had a, sort of a spot checking rule. At least, at least you, uh, as an inspection, as a self inspection mechanism, should spot check sometimes for E. coli as an indicator for feces. And even that rule went away, and it's been replaced by one in which the facilities can just spot check for the. Uh, item of their choice, you know, they don't have to really check for feces. So <laughs> that's just one of these things. It's it's kind of all about the convenience of the food industry. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to pull up some statistics here, and, and maybe we can talk about this on on a separate show, or or maybe I'll put this in my wrap up on this one. Um, I want to look at some stats on foodborne illness and just how many people get sick every year. Um, because of, of of contamination, I would imagine that it's it's going to be a substantial number. I mean, we we hear these horror stories on the news with fairly you know regularity. I don't have those numbers in front of me right now, but I I will say this: that uh, a surprisingly large number of people who think ah I just had a virus and it kind of went around the whole family and now the virus is gone. Wait a minute, that may not have been a virus. That could have been uh, Campylobacter, Salmonella, Listeria, something that you got in your chicken. And if you got a big dose of it, you had a terrible flu. Um, if you got a little bit of a little dose of it, it's something you threw off in a day or so. Yeah, well, I can think of more pleasant ways to spend my time than dealing with something like that. Uh, but I cannot think of a more pleasant way to spend my time than with you two gentlemen. Is there anything else that you think that we should touch on? regarding this before we we put a cap on this segment i think uh you know this isn't part of the lawsuit but neil said it best just just lay off the chicken and you'll lay off the feces and your cholesterol will drop and you'll feel a lot better that should be a t-shirt lay off the chicken (laughs) lay off the feces i like it coining a phrase dr barnard mark kennedy thank you very much for being here today gentlemen i appreciate it thank you chuck thank you So I want to share something with you before we move on. Skeptics will say, hey, quit picking on meat. All of those greens that you've been eating, they can make you sick too. Remember those recalls? Remember how many people got ill after eating spinach? Those are valid questions and ones that on the surface would make you think that, hey, maybe this isn't just a meat problem. But then think back to what Dr. Barnard said during that segment. The bacteria on that spinach, on that lettuce, was still originally from an animal source, and it then found its way onto the crops. So I was intrigued by what he said, and I wanted to learn more. So I put on my old reporter's hat, and I started to do some research. And right there on the FDA's website, they post their findings on foodborne illness investigations. So here's what they found for one such recent inquiry. This is from that big romaine lettuce E. coli outbreak last year. And we put up a link to this on our website, pcrm.org slash podcast. Here's what they found. Inspectors were able to trace that lettuce, that contaminated lettuce, back to Yuma County, Arizona. So they go there. And then they start taking a bunch of samples from a bunch of different sources. Okay, They're analyzing the soil. They're taking a look at animal feces, not just from farm animals, but from domestic animals. And then they've got surface water and subsurface water and agricultural water. And then they're also looking at sediment 
from a nearby canal. Now, growers used water from that canal to mix in with the chemicals that were then sprayed on crops. This now a direct quote from the report. The FDA considers that the most likely way romaine lettuce became contaminated was from the use of water from this irrigation canal, since the outbreak strain of E. coli was found in the irrigation canal, but in no other location. Further, quote, a large concentrated animal feeding operation is located adjacent to the stretch of the irrigation canal. Now, they're not exactly sure how that water became contaminated, but they are certain that the bacteria did come from that animal feeding operation. One more quote here. Quote, other possible explanations for how the canal became contaminated are possible, but the environmental assessment team found no evidence in support of those alternative explanations. End quote. Investigators also then went to the processing plants where the lettuce was taken and found no significant deficiencies in those operations, basically concluding in this case, it's not the processor's fault. Then they made some recommendations. And one of the recommendations that they made in that report to growers was to assess and to mitigate the risks associated with having cattle or dairy farms nearby because it can contaminate water that is then sprayed on crops, as was likely the case in this particular situation. Again, if you want to read the full report for yourself, we've linked off to it on our show page. Just head over to pcrm.org slash podcast, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it's right there in the show description as well. Speaking of which, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please go ahead and do that. We are available wherever podcasts are served up. Then look for new episodes each and every Wednesday. Bonus points, my friend, if you leave the show a five-star rating. And double bonus points if you share it with a friend or a family member. So as we touched on briefly during that segment, foodborne illness is not the only thing you have to worry about with meat. This is something that we've talked about quite a bit on the show, as a matter of fact. But I want to go back and I want to revisit an interview I did with Dr. Steve Niebuhr that really fits the bill for what it is that we're talking about. It goes to the whole argument that, yeah, but cooking the meat properly will kill this bacteria and then you won't get sick. Okay. Well, even so, what research shows is that you're then opening up another Pandora's box, a whole other one. And this Pandora's box in particular that we're talking about is grilling. For much of the country, the weather is getting warmer, and that means those barbecues are going to be fired up. That's a problem because grilling meat, the char from that flame, it can be quite problematic for your health. And when you're talking about grilled meats, is there one that is particularly hazardous to your health? Yep, there is. Can you guess which one it is? You're about to find out. (music) 
summer right around the corner memorial day the unofficial start to the summer season and of course that means a lot of people are going to be breaking out the grills doing some grilling and chilling and the former me would definitely throw some burgers on there some chicken on there but i'd like to think that i'm a little bit older and wiser and to confirm that my iq has risen just a little bit i want to welcome back to the show dr steve niebuhr from the barnard medical center hello dr niebuhr hello chuck how are you i'm doing great how are you fantastic you know are, are you a, are you a grill guy growing up were you a grill guy my, i should say my, my parents did a, a fair amount of grilling i don't think i was ever allowed to touch the grill no no just and too- not just because it was hot i mean like you know you just no uh, good at cooking yeah i don't know i mean you, you flip over the burger i guess yeah of course there's more do. to it than that there, i think but I, I don't care what you put on the grill you're gonna flip it over you pretty much have to flip everything yeah but there's a there's a technique to it you don't want to flip it too soon or too late right that oh absolutely because you lose the juices or something That's i guess right. and, and you have to attack it from the side you can't go straight on yeah see. you gotta you gotta come at it you know, at about a 45-degree angle, come in, swoop under. And this is good for whatever you put on the grill, by the way. Okay. You swoop under, get it right up there on the spatula, get yourself a nice flip. You know, I can tell you, not to brag, but I'm pretty good at grilling pancakes. Are, wh- what? You know, on the on – the, it's technically a griddle, right? Right. But it's still – it's kind of the same thing. Huh. Okay. I'm just I like to I like to make pancakes. All right. You're a pancake guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Dr. <laughs> Niebuhr's a pancake guy, which absolutely has nothing to do with what it is that we're talking about today. It's uh, close. It's you know, pancakes and grilled meat. I, I just think the grilling, you know, you're you're putting something on a hot surface. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we just add boiling water on the stove to that? All right. And and that's a cut, right? We're done? Is yeah. That, I don't even know. I'm giving, the, I'm giving the time out sign. I don't know what the cut. Wait. No. Uh, no, know. there's no cutting. We're, ju- <laughs> right. we're just going to keep rolling all here. Right. Shenanigans aplenty. Um, but in all seriousness, man, there is a, a real link between grilled meats and increased risk of cancer. Yeah. And this is something that uh, a lot of people are still unfamiliar with, despite the fact that the World Health Organization okay. has spoken out about it, um, despite the fact that you hear more and more about it at least in theory, um, you know, on the Internet and from organizations like the Physicians Committee. So what we're trying to do is just bring a little bit more awareness to it. So I I guess, like, let's let's start with the broad strokes, man. I mean, the open-ended question, what is that link? What causes that cancer connection? Wow, that that is a very broad question. It is. We're going to dial it in. Don't worry. There's there's a lot to it. The, The link, as per the World Health Organization, really has a lot to do with the, the compounds that are made when you actually grill the meat. Okay. So when you expose meat to very high temperatures and open flames, you get compounds that are actually made in the meat, which you then presumably ingest, and those compounds in your body are what lead to cancer or can lead to cancer. So these things, they have big, long names. There's heterocyclic amines or HCAs. Mm-hmm. Then there's polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Just rolls off the tongue. It sure does. Right? Uh, and both of those things are, are what are called mutagens. Okay. So I'm not talking about like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> right? But uh, mutagen means it, it can cause DNA damage. Hmm. And so that doesn't mean that it causes cancer, but DNA damage then can mean that that cell can no longer reproduce normally. Interesting. So sometimes your body can take care of it and get rid of it. Um, but sometimes we think of it like making a copy of a copy of a copy, and down the line, that copy quality is no longer as good as the original quality. Sure. And sometimes something can go wrong. So when the DNA needs to replicate 
reproduce itself to make a new cell, if there's a if there's an error making a copy of the copy, sometimes you can actually end up with copies that just go out of control. So now to use that same analogy, it'd be like the copier getting stuck in the on position, just making millions and millions and millions of copies. And when that happens in your cells, that's basically cancer. That's uncontrolled growth. So Interesting. So that's how that mutation in the DNA can then at times lead to cancer. Now, is this specific to, well, obviously it is specific to grilled meat. Um, is this kind of along the same lines, danger level from a doctor's opinion as processed meats, which we also know uh, have a strong link to cancer? Yeah, they're pretty similar. Yeah. So the processing of the meat can be can cause these chemicals to be made also. So right. they can be exposed to higher temperatures. Um, they can be certain chemicals can be added to the meat, which can then make these uh, make the cancer have sorry make the meat have increasing cancer producing abilities. Let's say, or increased ability to mutate the DNA in your cells. Do you know specifically what types of cancer we're talking about here? Yeah, they they found that the cancer is most common in your GI tract, actually. So, you know, it's follow the path of the meat, starting in the mouth, going down the throat, so throat cancer, going into the stomach, stomach cancer, going through the intestines, so colon cancer, rectal cancer, um, and then even ones like prostate cancer, breast cancer. Interesting. Yeah. So it kind of runs the whole gamut there. Yeah, yeah. They've even found links to blood cancers like lymphomas and leukemias. Um, th- well, that's that's interesting because, I, I, I mean, technically, isn't all cancer going to wind up in the blood at some point or another just because that's how the cells travel? Yeah, it, it depends. So if the cancer's spreading, so if you have um, metastasized cancer, then uh, with certain cancers, they'll spread through the blood. Some cancers spread just by touching other things. Mm-hmm. So you can see sometimes the you know the organs in your abdomen, you can see cancer spreading, let's say, from the pancreas to the stomach or something like that, where those two organs are, are pretty close to each other. So it doesn't necessarily have to go through the blood. But when we say blood cancer, we really mean cancers that are originating with those cells that make blood cells, so the stem cells for the blood, which are usually found in the bone marrow. I want to go back to the HCAs and the PHAs. Um, let me correct me if I'm I'm okay. saying these incorrectly. Go for it. Heterocyclic amines. Yes. And polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Yes. Yeah. Look at you me. You got it. You yeah. got it. You're ready to be an organic chemist. Yeah, man. Uh, what, what what is the difference between the two there, really? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I know you are. So they, it, it has to do with the structure. All right. Mm-hmm. So both of these. Both of these substances have kind of a ring in their structure. So I'm not sure how much chemistry you've had in your life, but if you think of, um, let's say, uh, uh, a molecule of alcohol okay. or ethanol, right? there's two carbons. They're kind of right next to each other. There's no ring there. But these substances here, I'm just using the alcohol as an example because it's a common substance that people know. Sure. But these substances have an actual ring in their structure. And what differenti- differentiates the two of them is what makes up the ring. Okay. So the the poly uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, there you let's go. say PAHs from now on, yes. um, have have carbon in the ring. They're made up entirely of carbon in the ring or at least the primary ring, whereas the the, the other one, the HCA, the heterocyclic amines, um, they have an uh, atom of nitrogen in the ring actually. And hmm. so it's basically what makes up the ring that is the difference between the two. Um, and I found it interesting, actually, that smoking a cigarette can produce some of these 
substances as well. Really? Yeah. See, well, now, see, now that that just kind of ties it together for everybody. If yeah. you're equating smoking to grilled meat, that's that's gonna open some eyes. There. Yeah. This is that's the I think that's one of the key ideas to keep in mind as the link between those two. So people always say, well, oh, is eating meat as bad as smoking? Right. We're, we're not saying it's as bad, but there's overlap. There's right. similarities between the two. Um, so here's uh, the question. I know that the Physicians Committee back, I guess, a little bit more than a decade ago, ran a pretty comprehensive study about this. Mm-hmm. And they came up with a list of the worst foods that you can put on a grill. Mm-hmm. Apparently, some meats are worse than others yeah. um, when it comes to firing up the grill. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm looking at the top, and it seems like we have one that's far and away the leader. And yeah. uh, spoiler alert, you would think it's the healthiest. Right. Go ahead. You're going to reveal it? You want me to reveal it? So, Go ahead, so They found chicken breast, actually. Skinless, boneless chicken breast mm-hmm. um, is, is actually the worst out of this list here. Um, I, I don't know exactly why it's the worst, so I can't say for sure why. Um, but a lot of times it has to do with how much muscle is in there. So if there's more muscle tissue compared with fat in the chicken breast, hmm. maybe that's it. I'm just taking a guess. That's I don't, a, I don't yeah, know that. That's, that's a good stab. But the, the creatine that's in the muscle, so creatine is uh, it's a protein in our muscle that helps with muscle contraction, and it's actually been found to increase your increase the production of these HCAs and uh, PHAs. Right. I remember in high school playing football, uh, one of the supplements the coach really pushed on us was creatine. Yeah. 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 It was big on that, man. Yeah. And I remember even like Mark McGuire uh, back in the day, they said he was taking creatine supplements and all this. Well, it was a little bit more Uh, than creatine. I I know a little bit more, but that was one of the ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's so interesting. I mean, just looking at these levels, though, and we're going to put this up on PCRM.org slash podcast for you so you can take a look at this yourself. I mean... So you've got chicken at the top, followed by steak, but chicken has 14,000 nanograms of HCAs per 100 grams of of meat. Steak, only 810. Yeah. That's a huge, huge difference. Yeah, that's quite a bit less. And and you're right, it really is surprising because whenever whenever I have people in the office that, that tell me, oh, I'm eating better, I'm eating healthier, and you say, what are you doing? Often they'll say, well, I'm eating more chicken. Right. I'm not eating as much red right. meat. Um, and it depends on how it's cooked. We said that at the beginning. You know, mm-hmm. um, We're talking mainly about grilling meat. Sure. And so if you're grilling the chicken on a barbecue or on a grill, you're, you're increasing the rate at which these chemicals are produced. Um, and part of that is the heat, actually. The higher the heat, the more of these chemicals you're going to make and the more kind of complex complicated chemicals you're going to make. Right. And let's also not forget that, you know, chicken, again, has the wrap of being healthier, but pound for pound, it's got roughly the same amount of cholesterol and and fat as beef does. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's got this kind of halo around it where you think, oh, it's chicken, it's good for me, but um, it's really not necessarily that much better for you, or maybe I should say not necessarily much less worse for you. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of going back to like, why is it that a chicken breast would be at the top? And you say, well, maybe because it's more muscle. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, if you throw a steak on there or even dark meat, <laughs> yeah. it's going to come with more fat. Yeah. And the fat, if you put it on the grill, that's going to burn off. Ergo, you're going to have less muscle left over, less muscle tissue. 
I mean, wait, not, the, when the fat burns off? When the fat burns off? I, no, because, you have more. Well, well no, hear me out, right? <laughs> okay, all right, all right? You have eight ounces of skinless, boneless yeah. chicken breast, right? Yeah. You have eight ounces of steak. Okay. Eight ounces of steak, say two to three ounces of that is fat. Yeah. If that burns off, you're still only left with what six, five yeah. or six ounces of, okay. of meat. So, the, I mean, that's just a hypothesis. We don't even know if that's a correct guess to begin with. True, true. But I'll tell you also that when you burn off the fat, the vapors from burning the fat contain these chemicals. Oh, my God. You so, can't win. Sorry, man. You know, so even breathing in the the fumes from the fire or from the from the fire and from the barbecue uh, can lead to cancer. And that's what you were saying, because you bike to and from work, yeah. and you're saying especially this time of year, oh, yeah. you, you can't bike home without smelling right. it. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think it's happened yet. And it's, you know, it's only May. That's um, interesting. Pretty much every ride, because I leave here usually between six and seven at night, um, and that's prime barbecue time, I think, right? Sure, so, sure. Uh, I, and I go through neighborhoods and just, yeah, I smell those barbecues every, every night. You equate that to secondhand cigarette smoke? Yeah, I mean, probably not as bad. Um, again, if we're comparing apples to apples, but we're not exactly doing that. We're just saying that anything that you're breathing in that's coming from this grilling process, yeah. if you're grilling meat, can increase your risk of, of cancer. So here's the question, and we're going to have Lee Crosby, a uh, registered dietitian, uh, come back on the show here in just a little bit and talk about uh, alternatives to grilling meat if you still want to fire up the barbecue. Um I think it's it's an important question to ask then. What happens with plant-based foods on the mm. grill? Are we running into some of these same issues? That's a that's a fantastic question. Well, and thank you. and the the answer is no, we're not actually because you're not grilling muscle. Right? Oh. Right? Plants don't really have muscle, I don't think. To the best of my knowledge, right? no they don't. Maybe in the movies some of the I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, so they don't have that creatine that's in there. Um, and they don't have the same really the same setup of protein or amino acids, um, which is really where these things come from. It's, right. it's when you're really cooking those proteins, like the creatine, um, and you're, you're basically just cooking that muscle. That's what turns these chemicals into carcinogens. And let's not forget that typically a plant-based diet is going to lower your risk of cancer overall. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they have studied it. I mean, they haven't found anywhere near the level of these uh, cancer-causing chemicals in plant-based foods or plant foods when they're grilled. Right. Um, I think the exact wording from the uh, from the NIH or I forget what website we were looking at there, but was it was not found in significant amounts. Right. I, I mean that that to me is just fascinating, and I will say um, I love some grilled corn. Yeah. I love some grilled red peppers. Just kind of keep it simple. You yeah. throw that on there. Uh, I know you're not an eggplant guy, but that's that's kind of beefy. It's kind of meaty. That's <laughs> well, a, that's a good thing to grill. Well, you know what, Chuck? I know you're not a watermelon guy. Definitely, and not. I, I have this watermelon sitting in front of me here. At least a little. I don't know the watermelon doll. Watermelon doll. Watermelon, yeah. watermelon doll? Yeah, 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 there yeah. you go. Yeah. But people grill watermelon. I've never what? had grilled watermelon, but I know people do it. How? What? No. How? I don't know. People. Maybe somebody can write in on our on Twitter or something and yeah. tell us about that. At PCRM. Yeah. At Chuck Carroll WLC. What's yours? I don't have. Uh, no, nah, he. I, yeah, I'm gonna that. one day. One you, day. You need to just so you can interact with the listeners. I don't really do the. How, do, how does one grill watermelon? I, I, mean, I, I think you just literally slice it and put it on the grill. I, I've never experienced it, but I've heard people talk about it. That's weird. I, to me, personally, it may taste delicious. I might enjoy watermelon. Maybe. 
if it's been grilled. I don't know. Maybe we should try it. I think we should. But you don't enjoy watermelon? I, I just, don't. I know. But I, I never really, have. I don't really enjoy eggplant. No. Uh, I don't know. We're, I'm not, yeah. we're weird like that, I guess. Uh, I, I don't like onions either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, Dr. Niebuhr, thank you very much. Sure. As always, super educational. Thank um, you. I like you, man. You know the thing that I really enjoy <laughs> about having you on is like – so you you are always able to bring the science and use these big terms, you know, but y- you also have this way of explaining it so that everyone understands. That is a skill that not every doctor has. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I, so do your patients. I, Believe uh, you me. I try to explain things. I used to explain things to my grandmother. Uh, try to explain things to my parents or, you know, everybody else. I think if you don't really if you don't really get that person to understand what you're talking about, it's kind of pointless. Like right. what, you know, I can tell you all about your, how your body works, but if you don't understand it, I might as well be speaking a foreign language. Mm, Touche. Right. Yeah. And I know I always think of the, uh, the quote that's attributed to Einstein, which I don't know if he actually said this or not, but this is what I've read. Uh, you don't really understand something until you can explain it to your mother, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't. I don't know that he said that either, man. I, I don't know, but I've read that, it, yeah. so it must be true. You yeah, know, absolutely. If, if you it's saw online, it on the internet, yeah. yeah, it's online. Absolutely. It must be true. Absolutely. But it's a good point, nonetheless. No doubt. You gonna fire up the grill this summer? I don't even own a grill. Yeah. All right. You're calling me out. Yeah. Well, stop by your place. But you got a griddle. I have a griddle for the pancakes. Mm. Yeah. Right. But that goes on the stove. You know. I know. Mm. You know how the griddles work. I, I'm I'm familiar. It's not a plug in the wall griddle. It's a it's an actual stove griddle. You got a you got a legit one. I remember going camping as a child and and taking the griddle out with us and then building yeah. the campfire in the morning and having pancakes that way. Okay, that was good. We should do that too. I think so. All right, we'll just go out on Wisconsin Avenue, build a little <laughs> fire. You bring your griddle. Yeah, yeah. We got the field in the back of the office here. Yeah. Know. What the heck? And we got the grocery store downstairs so we can get the material. There we go. You know? Plans coming together. Dude, I love it when a plan comes Ah. together. Here's the thing that you need to know about this show. I'm going to speak to you now, not as a representative of the Physicians Committee, but just as myself. I'm not going to put anything on the exam room that has not been thoroughly researched and investigated. This show does not operate in speculation. It operates in facts. And that is why I encourage you to look at this research for yourself so you can draw your own independent conclusions. That is what I was trained to do when I was working as a news reporter. And that is what I continue to do today. So right there on PCRM.org, you will find links to all the research that we've been discussing, as well as a link to the FDA and CDC reports that we've discussed. You can even find a copy of the lawsuit that the Physicians Committee filed. It's all right there at your fingertips. PCRM.org slash podcast. Check it out. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, I'd encourage you to pull out your phone right now. Give a couple of follows on social media. Love to talk with you. Love to take your questions. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. That's Carroll with two R's and two L's and the WLC standing for weight loss champion. The Physicians Committee now is at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on Instagram. It's just spelled out. Also, it's a great place to share your ideas for future shows. You know, we've gotten a lot of requests and we're working on a lot of them as well. 
We've heard from quite a few of you who want to know what the effect of a plant-based diet is, what effect that has on women going through the change of life. This is probably the most requested topic that we get, and we're working on it. Just know that that show is coming. I've heard from so many of you, even in the last couple of weeks, just been inundated with requests for this show. So it is coming. And if you have any other ideas, if there's anything specific that you want us to talk about, just let me know at Chuck Carroll WLC or at PCRM. And hey, before I get out of here, what are you doing May 10th and 11th? I want to hang out with you. So how about coming to this two-day workshop to learn everything you need to know about how to get going on a plant-based diet? Or maybe you've been vegan for a while and could just use a tune-up. That's okay, too. As a matter of fact, it's exactly what this course is designed for. So save the date. May 10th and 11th in Washington, D.C. I'm going to be speaking there. Dr. Barnard, he's going to be speaking there. Lee Crosby, dietitian extraordinaire, a.k.a. the Fiber Queen, she's going to be there. So many others, so many friends of the podcast, all going to be in one location, May 10th and 11th, and we would love to have you join us. So you want to go? Just head over to PCRM.org to register. Makes a great gift, too. But there are only a handful of seats left, so get yours now before they are all gone, because we would love to meet you. So that's going to do it for today. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based.